Hey, welcome everybody to Spirituality Adventures. We're glad you're tuning into this episode. Uh, we are a viewer and listener supported podcast, so we really appreciate you listening, watching on YouTube. We really encourage you to subscribe to whatever platform you're using. If you're on YouTube, hit that subscribe button, or if you're on Apple or however you listen to a podcast, be sure and subscribe. We greatly appreciate it. Also, make comments if you like it and share it if you like it. We really need people to make comments and share the episodes that you like. And then also, if you're not already a supporter, we really would encourage you to go to spiritualityadventures.com and you can pick a tier and we have bonus content for every type of giver. These are this is a nonprofit, so they're tax deductible donations, but we do provide bonus content for those who uh, are supporters. So be a part of the team, help support Spirituality Adventures. And we're so glad you're tuning into this episode. Welcome, everybody, to Spirituality Adventures. Great to uh, have you tune into this episode. And I am I'm so excited to introduce you to Frank Rogers. And Frank is a professor at Claremont School of Theology in California. He's the Muriel Bernice Roberts Professor of Spiritual Formation and Narrative Pedagogy. And uh, he, he has written books. Um, he's the co-founder for the Center of Engaged Compassion. And uh, he, uh, he has written a new memoir called Cradled in the Arms of Compassion. And I actually just got an email from a friend of yours, I guess, David. David Morris. Yeah. yeah. And uh, and when I looked at, you know, what he sent me and just the kinds of stuff that I do on spirituality adventures, you know, I interview musicians and authors and business owners. We always talk about spirituality and what we love. And I also, but I also do a lot on recovery and mental health issues as well, just because of my own journey and what I've gone through the last several years myself. And so um, this, uh, Frank, welcome to Spirituality Adventures, by the way. Honor to be here, Fred, really. Joining us. I, I mean, this is a tough read. Um, you have been through a lot of trauma. You're a sexual abuse survivor, and you really do dive into this uh, in this memoir. Uh, but I, I really loved uh, when I was looking at it, um, I, I, I told you previously before we got this rolling is that when I went through therapy, the therapies models that helped me the most were uh, DBT, dialectical behavioral therapy, mindful meditation world that I've been a part of now for a few years. And, uh, and I loved IFS, uh, the internal family systems. And but Richard Schwartz is the founder of IFS and a friend of yours, I understand, and endorsed your book. So I was like, it got me really curious. I need to read this. Okay. Yeah. So let's start. Tell us where you were born, where you grew up. Uh, introduce yourself to the audience and give us a little of your origin story. Uh, yeah. Well, thank you. And it really is an honor to be here, Fred. So thank you for taking that time to, to have a conversation with me. Um, I, I'm born in San Francisco, California, and uh, and lived there through up into my high school years, um, a, a cradle Catholic. Um, we were a Roman Catholic family until my folks split up um, the day before I started high school. And my dad had a conversion experience and, and became part of a, 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 a the, the 
Church of God, Anderson, Indiana, kind of a holiness movement uh, denomination. So I would start going there on weekends when I was with him and and summers when we were living with him. And uh, when it was time to go to college, uh, I had a youth minister from that Church of God that I wanted to be just like him when I grew up. And he had gone to Anderson College in Anderson, Indiana. And so I went there uh, for my undergrad and um, and then went on to, to the East Coast to do my MDiv and PhD work and became a professor in spirituality. So. Yeah, and what is is Anderson University a Southern Baptist University? No, it's it's part of the the, the movement. It's called it's, they don't call themselves a denomination; they call themselves a movement. But it's a Church of God Anderson Indiana movement. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I I, I was and it's located where in Anderson, uh, Indiana, so just north of Indianapolis. Okay. I was kind of confused. I think there's another Anderson. Or I don't know. Anyway, I was getting confused with one that's in Carolina in the Carolinas. That's oh yeah, yeah. yeah, in Indiana. Yeah. But this would be a fairly conservative university, right? Yeah, right. Exactly, faith-based school. Right, yeah. right. And ironically, when I went there, I rediscovered my Catholic roots. <laughs> so I, I didn't, it didn't quite follow the particular line there. But um, okay. And then from there, you you went to. Um, uh, Presbyterian Theological Seminary. Yeah, which is actually, you know, a, a fictitious name. So I, I went to Princeton, um, yeah. Princeton Seminary. Yeah. yeah. So we changed the site name. So, so I'm, I'm reading your book, you know, and I, and I didn't realize that some of the stuff in it was fictitional. Right. Well, not, nothing in it is fictitious. It's just that the, some of the names are changed. Right. Um, so that the identifying factors for for some of the people, especially kind of the women that I was connected with, I really wanted to protect their privacy and their identity. So we just changed some of their names and hometowns and schools, yeah. stuff like that. But all the events are factual. They're, they're, they're all real. There's nothing fiction about it. OK, uh, OK. <laughs> well, it, but it was a little like not, you know, start reading it. And I'm like going, what what is Presbyterian Theological Seminary in New Jersey like? And then I'm like, going, isn't that Princeton? You know, like, and then, so my, you know, my brain is like, and then like Kathy shows up <laughs> and I'm like, as the story goes along and Kathy keeps popping in, I'm like, and I'm looking at the back. I was like, no, his, it says he has a wife named Elaine with three kids. And I was trying to figure out as I was reading along how Kathy fit in with well, when's, when's he going to get divorced? And when's he going to, yeah, yeah. Well, kind of happened early on. I mean, in the book, I mean, so yeah, yeah we, we divorced almost as soon as I came after my son was born, a couple of years after my son was and born. And was your son's name, Justin? My son's name is Justin. Okay, right. Okay. So I was trying to figure out which names were. The yeah, so the only two names that are off would be, uh, would be Kathy's name and, and Presbyterian Theological Seminary. Those okay. are the um, only two names. Um, okay. I think that we changed, and and it was mainly to protect Kathy and the people who informed Kathy. Yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah, and so when you met your first wife at the college, is that right? You met at the at the yeah. No, I no. We met. I met Kathy at uh, at Camp Good News at a at a summer camp um, for for boys and girls in Cape Cod. Oh, okay. All right. I mean, I had a I had a brief relationship when I was in college that I talk a little bit about in the book, um, but that was just a young puppy love type of a thing. And um, but yeah, 
Kathy was the person on. you named Kathy who had to, like, you had to, you had to believe this and you had to do the, she had that whole list of <laughs> right, right. I had to get permission from her dad yeah. uh, before we go on a date. I had to agree to her 10 principles. And, um, and then I had to agree that, you know, that she wouldn't kiss uh, anybody until, till her wedding day kiss with the person she was marrying. And so those, those were the three conditions when, when we first met. Dan. Yeah. And, yeah. I kind of lied my way through all three of them. I mean, or not not lied, but I, you know, I, I went ahead and wrote her, wrote her dad, and you know, he thought it was a little strange, but you know, what the heck? And he was kind about it. And the ten principles, I really didn't believe them, but you know, I could do enough theological contortions. You know, well, the spirit of this, you know, there there's some truth to this that I can, you know, buy into. And and the whole kissing thing. I mean, a sexual abuse survivor touch can be so suspect anyway that it kind of created a safe place. It's like, great. We don't have to get into the, the mm. world of sexuality here then. Um, you know, so, yeah. Okay. So I, I'm curious one thing about your theological journey and I, I kind of want to touch on that, but then, then I want to, then after I hear a little bit of that, I want to kind of hear, I want to dive into your, you know, the sexual abuse journey. And I, I really want to, dig into that. And then I want to leave time at the end to really talk about like in the back of the book, you give those 10 uh, things that you found really valuable and important for healing from trauma. And I kind of want to leave some time to talk about healing from trauma. You've been through a lot of intense trauma. So theologically, you, you started out evidently fairly conservative. Is that accurate? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, traditional, I mean, you know, Catholic, Catholic boy went to catechism and, you know, kind of bought, you know, the Catholic orthodoxy and, and then, yeah, went my dad's church, you know, it was a kind of a Bible believing church and it, it felt, you know, home enough until I kind of got radicalized in college and learned historical criticism and alternative religions and things like that. So I started asking more questions, but yeah. Did you, did you pretty quickly embrace a more progressive theology at like early on in your college career or, or Uh, in other words, did you go through some kind of deconstruction theologically at some point? Did you have a, or was it more related to your own relationship with trauma? Yeah, for me, it was really related to my relationship with trauma. And it was a profound theological deconstruction. I mean, you know, for, you know, the traditional idea of a God, you know, some some being up in the sky who who uh, ha- is all knowing and all powerful and can intervene in history whenever he's, you know, usually he he wants to and or decides not to for his own you know personal reasons. And you just have to trust that. For an abuse survivor, that's a pretty, pretty dangerous understanding of God. And uh, but that was my understanding. And so it's like, why, God, did you allow this to happen? Where were you in the midst of this? Didn't you care enough about me then that you'd want to stop this? And and so that God needed some serious deconstruction before anything more plausible would be able to emerge. Yeah. You know, I I hung on to I did a I did a Tom Ward interview. He, his new book came out, "The Death of Omnipotence," and then and then he he's made up this new term, omnipotence. Oh, huh. Uh, which omnipotence? I you know love love as the as the central uncontrolling love as mm-hmm. the central attribute of God versus you know the classic deist position. And I tried to hang on to that 
classic deist position, always leaning more toward free will defense arguments. And then, you know, and in the end, you have to rely on mystery to make any sense of evil and suffering in, in that model, right? Because God's in control in some way or another, even though he's allowing free will to work. But the, the interplay between God's all, almighty power and human free will and, and that dance, you know, I tried to hold on to that leaning toward the free will world. But once I went through my own uh, emotional breakdown, I guess, trauma and, um, and really just my relationship to God kind of fell apart and it just felt like it actually felt like I'd been a, if God existed ever, it felt like it, you know, God had set me up for a failure and then abandoned me and kicked me to the curb. It's, it's kind of emotionally how it felt. Exactly. Yeah. I'm, I'm exa exactly the same for me. If, if that is who God is, then boy, it sure sucks to be us. Right. And your, your question on page 209 of your memoir, how can God live with himself when he sees a young girl being raped by her dad and he doesn't do a thing? Yeah. Ugh. That cuts it right to the bone, right? Ugh. And 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 for an abuse survivor, that is our question, right? So whatever happened to me, yeah. why did God look down and allow that to happen and not do a thing about it? And yeah. And there's no, you know, there's no good answer. I mean, it, except for that God doesn't exist. You know, that that notion of of the all-powerful God who could intervene in history um and you know, it, it just decides not to. Um, that, that God doesn't oh, exist. I'm going to sit back and watch this. Let's <laughs> yeah. Exactly, right. You know, and, 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 and also think about it from a, a survivor, like, you know, so, so what do I supposed to do as a survivor? You're supposed to not ask questions, trust that God is doing it for you know, God's own good reason. Um, God cares about the perpetrator's free will. And so it's not going to interrupt and, and just count it all joy because you're actually participating in the suffering of Christ and, and uh, you're going to be better for it. To an abuse survivor, that's a theology that serves the perpetrator, right? To have the just the, the abuse survivor, the victim, stay quiet and not ask questions and take it on yourself. That's an insidious and poisonous theology and an insidious view of God. Yeah, it left it left me. I, emotionally, I felt that way, even though I didn't go through what you went through. And what I went through, a lot of people could just say, well, that's your fault, Fred. You know, and I, I but, you know, there's there's elements to it. Um that I, you know, I thought like the prayers that I prayed millions of times that God didn't answer right. that led to my downfall, that made me like, well, F, f you, God. I mean, I literally well, like, that's exactly. how I felt. like, it's like, exactly. oh exactly. my gosh. And that I was, that was yeah. painful for me here. I was a mega church pastor and then having all of these, oh, oh, she's Imagine you're preaching this God yeah. that I don't believe in or doesn't make sense or certainly screws up with my faith life. Oh, it, it's gosh. excruciating to think that God doesn't care enough about you to keep the horrific things from happening oh. or, you know, or, or, or God is not coming in and intervening and being with you through it. It, it does feel like abandonment and, mm -hmm. and uh, some cruel God that, you know, you just, I, I find a lot of help from the post-Holocaust theologians like uh, Melissa Raphael, who said, you know, that whole notion of a God that can intervene in history when it suits his whims and decide not to and and uh, can overpower you know, human agency um, and has his own good reasons. She said that God looks more like Hitler than it does anything redemptive. I mean, that's a really masochistic understanding 
understanding of a sacred God. And, and it's not that powerful. I mean, I, I love your, your friend, you know, who has this notion of, of love and compassion, you know, a, 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 a sacred being that can be with us in our, in our deepest pain and just be a presence of care and compassion that could rekindle a spark of hope and life out of the deepest despair, that's true power. I mean, that's that's a whole different kind of power than somebody who can come in and control like a puppeteer, you know, human beings. That, that's that's where I go for sacred power. Yeah. Yeah. So let's let's dive into, you know, the backdrop for this memoir. You started off with um, a scene with your Catholic, you know, you're, you're basically getting abused by a nun who sends you to the priest who then sexually abuses you. That's how you start the memoir off basically. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that first scene is really important because it sets up the whole quest because yeah, I mean, this really, you know, strict nun that, you know, is, you know, all, you know, dialing it in with the catechism and all that. Um, but, but, you know, just to kind of get away from that, I went into a church just on a whim and, um, and in the midst of that had just this amazing, you know, mystical experiences. Like, you know, I saw the statue of Mary and I just, I felt like Mary had come down with this maternal embrace and care and was sitting with me, you know, cradling me in compassion in this profound way. And it got interrupted by this priest who came out of the confessional and saw me there alone and and then invited me to his office and sexually abused me. And and for me, that's that's exactly the the, the question is like, which of one of those is real? Right. I mean, was that mystical experience real or or was the evil that I experienced? Does that just wash all that away? And and I just left with the shame of my own trauma. Um, that's that frames for me my psycho-spiritual quest is how do I find a sacred resource that that can see me through the horrific trauma of, of a sexual abuse survivor? And you were eight or about eight at that time? Eight, six, six or seven or eight. Yeah, something like that, right. And then had you already experienced uh, abuse before that priest in your home? Yeah, yeah, I mean, the priest was really, I mean, that was a one-off. I mean, that was just a visiting person, right. and, and it's the only time that happened. The real heart of my sexual abuse came from my mom. And, mm. you know, my mom, who had been um, you know, molested by her stepfather from the time she was five until the time she was 18, he, he was the real predator in the family. Uh, but my mom kind of had a very skewed understanding of sexuality and intimacy, and I was her, her oldest, her number one. She had a horrific marriage. And so she turned to me for, for her sense of closeness in every way, including sexually and, 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 you know, you know, in, in, in its various forms. And that, that was the real, real pain. And she didn't protect us from her father, her stepfather, when he came and visited us. And so his stepfather raped me and raped my sister. And, and um, um, that, that's the, the real primary place of, of the mm -hmm. sexual trauma that the legacy we're living. Is your mom still alive? No, she just passed a few weeks ago, actually. Oh, oh really? Yeah. Um, did she ever find any healing herself? I'm curious because you, you, you know, she's, she's along for this journey all the way through, right? The mom becomes an, almost an archetype, right? Of there's the, the abuse mom. And then there's the, the Piata, 
Right, right, exactly. Uh, the yep. contrast between the yeah. two, right? Exactly. Did she ever find healing herself? She, no, she never found healing. And interestingly uh, enough, I mean, you know, she, you know, she insisted that she would never abuse me. And, and you know, the way she had been abused, you know, but the, the kind of violent um, maliciousness, she never did. But, you know, the kind of the seductive closeness, intimacy abuse, she finally got that um, in a therapy session that, you know, when she came to one of my therapy sessions and we had, for the first time, was able to hear that. And and when that happened, I mean, she just broke down and sobbed and just mm-hmm. sobbed and, and, you know, expressing just the remorse, just the horror of what she had went through. But then it got bottled up again. I mean, she just she was not never able to kind of go there in, in a healing journey of her own. And, um, and, and interestingly enough, until she passed away, I mean, she, she just passed away a few weeks ago. And when she was, she, we would put her in hospice. And when she was clear, she had a matter of days, I went and visited her and, um, and she was on morphine and she was, um, you know, unconscious and on Ativan, completely doped up. And uh, the hospice nurse couldn't understand it because my mom was just scowling and grimacing and in just dis- you know, severe distress. And they thought she was on enough meds that she should have been OK. And what I had realized was that um, she had always been telling me she she was terrified to die because when she died, she was going to you know, Catholic schoolgirl. She's going to have to go up and see her maker. And and she had so much shame for all of the abuse that that she had lived with. But the, the things that she had done in her promiscuity and the th- ways that she had been with me, she could not imagine God in any way um, uh, doing anything but be repulsed by her and just reject her. She was terrified. Right. And it was like now she was hours away from death. And, and her whole body and being is just like grimacing out of distress that she's going to be dying soon. And I realized it's like, it's like, all of the parts of her that carry that shame, they're like, no, don't die. We don't want to be forced into, you know, what's on the other side. And and so through kind of a meditative prayer experience, I just imagined myself, okay, I'm just going to kind of be with my mom and all of those shamed parts of her and tell her each one of those, it came from your pain. It came from suffering. It could be washed away and you can, you can be clean of that and it doesn't make you untouchable and god is nothing but compassion and will hold you and 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 i did this prayer experience with her for two hours Hmm. Uh, and the hospice nurse came in and said my mom was completely at peace she was at peace and she passed like three or four hours later and so so not in this world but i think kind of in the spirit world however we understand that um i i think she finally came to a place where where she can be with her own shame and and find healing in the midst of that and recognize that that even as horrific as it is it doesn't make us disposable goods it doesn't make us untouchable yeah. that sacred reality of compassion cradles us even in the midst of that wow beautiful um i you know as i was reading through you know the picture of your mother through the memoir um i kept you know my my little pastor armchair psychologist thing kept trying to think of diagnosing her as like borderline personality disorder is what it sounded like. I don't know if that's even. uh, No, It's somewhere in that realm. Yeah. She was like a over the top, you know, kind of narcissistic, just did not have a capacity to really recognize other people in the room. She was, you know, footloose and fancy free. I mean, she, she could have been a, you know, Fanny Bryce, you know, in a, in a, in a, I mean, she really had that charisma and that energy, you know, but 
because of her trauma and her abuse, it just, it got all twisted out. And, and yeah, she was kind of a hard person to be around. Yeah. When, when did the abuse stop for you? Did it continue into your teen years? Well, the, the more blatant, you know, kind of sleeping together and showers together and that stuff stopped when I was, you know, in grade school. Um, but, but, you know, she, she just, you know, she had an over the top lasciviousness, you know I mean? She would, you know, be around without all her clothes on and, you know, plant big wet ones and want to give me big hugs, you know, and she's topless. I mean, you know, that kind of stuff that, that lingered really until I went to college. Okay. And, and then you, you know, you, it sounded like, um, you, you know, you, you're a great student, you're super smart, super brilliant, every, you know, that, I mean, you've studied with some amazing professors, um, with, uh, was it Dr. Uh, oh, who, who did your PhD advisor? Dr. Loder. Dr. Loder yeah, it was a brilliant. Uh, Dr. Loder. Dr. Mm-hmm. Loder and, and then Dr. Massey when I was in Massey, college. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. And, such a brilliant figure, you know? Amazing. I, 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 I kind of look at that, you know, you know, I, it was really kind of an addiction for me. It was a form of addiction. I mean, it was, it was a way of living in my head because I couldn't face all the trauma when I was in college or in my, uh, seminary years. Um, and so I hid out, you know, the monkey on my back was I would just read intellectual tomes, right? And, you know, and for whatever reason, I went that way instead of any other of a number of addictions I could have easily have have gone into to, to you know, hide away from my trauma. Um, it just turned out to be one that, you know, served me well in the end, you know. Yeah. And got you good positions. Where was your first teacher position? I taught at Princeton when um, I was in my PhD program. I was doing some adjunct for them, but my first full-time position was here at Claremont. So I've been here 35 years. Yeah. But you, you, so when you went to Claremont as a full, full professor, and then you were working toward tenure, right. And you're married. Right. Kids. One kid, right. One kid, Justin. And then you had basically what, what led to that sort of break where you wound up in, in the, uh, in the hospital for an extended well, period uh, of time? What, what were the things that transpired? Cause you're, you're a successful pastor. You're on the tenure track. You're brilliant. Students probably love you, you know, but then you're, you have this huge sound like a big meltdown break kind of a thing. A total breakdown. Yeah. Meltdown. Um, so I had always struggled with depression and self-loathing and, you know, I'd go to bed every night with suicidal, you know, just thinking of ways I would kill myself. And, you know, for, for years and years, um, you know, through high school or through college and grad school, but never, you know, but just learned to live with that. And, and, you know, part of a, a sexual abuse survivor is you carry so much shame about, you know, what happened to you and what's really going on, and the feelings that you're having and and, um, and the images you're you're imagining and remembering that 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 for me, I had to put up a facade of like perfection. I mean, it's like so. So I let nobody, nobody even have a hint that I was mentally troubled in, in any way, um, let alone the kinds of sexual abuse stuff that I was you know kind of wrestling around with. So I did put on that facade of the, you know, I'm going to be a great teacher. I'm going to be a great professor. I'm going to speak and and be engaging and witty. And, you know, I'm going to be on committees and I'm going to, you know, serve the community and, you know, all this way that just totally hid the real severe rages and, and, and horrors that were inside of me. 
what made it break was when my son was born and my mom then came down to, to meet him. He was a few months old and my mom wanted to be close with him in the ways that she had been close with me, taking a shower with him and kissing him and stuff. And I just erupted. I mean, I just, I mean, went ballistic, you know, in front of her, like you are never touching my kid, get away. But then it just opened up this cauldron where for months and months, I mean, I would just start having nightmares and, and the images and flashbacks of what she had done for me that I just couldn't stop the rages, the, the shame, the self laceration, I started cutting myself and, and uh, started finding ways to kill myself. And then show up at school and pretend to be the perfect professor um, until I just couldn't do it anymore. And um, uh, I separated from my wife. Um, and so kind of like a publicly admitted, you know, I don't have it all together. Started losing weight. I was severely depressed and um, got so depleted that I almost dropped off a cliff and and uh, ended up in a mental hospital. Yeah. If I, you, you, you were literally in a pharmacy, it sounded like, for it sounded like you were there for hours, perhaps, or long enough for the pharmacist to to yeah. nudge you, and then you were then you were left there and were driving, and like you were somebody noticed you or your car for like over yeah. a twenty four hour period or something like. I, yeah, it was, it was you know it was after we separated, and you know I, I just went into this crazy depression. I stopped eating. I was losing weight. I was isolating, and and then finally decided, you know what, I'm going to kill myself. But I was so dissociated and kind of disconnected that you know I, I decided I was going to go buy sleeping pills, and so I went to a pharmacy. And, and I was so dissociated and, and kind of, you know, energyless that I apparently I was standing in front of these sleeping pills for like 60 minutes or so until finally the pharmacist came over and says, you know, I don't think you want to buy these, you know, and I'm just like, what? It was like I was in a stupor and it woke me up and oh, oh, yeah, okay. You know, I, I'm just looking, you know, and some lame thing like that. And he said, yeah, I, I think you ought to, you know, try to go find some help. And, and I went out into my car and I mean, it was just like, it was like I had a leak in my spirit. It was like my spirit and energy was just leaking out from me. And I was becoming more and more lethargic and I was living up in the mountains. And so I was trying to drive home from that pharmacy, just get just get me up to my cabin and get me into my bed. And, and as I'm driving, I mean, I'm not even able to concentrate. I can't even see the road exactly and stay in the lanes. And uh, until finally, my, I just kind of passed out and my, um, uh, leapt over on the side of my passenger seat. I, I drive a clutch. And so I took my foot off the clutch, which stopped the car, but it went right up alongside of a cliff. I mean, I could have just easily have driven off the side of this cliff. And I just laid there and, the, you know, it's like nine o'clock at night and a wintry night. And, you know, nobody came. I was just, you know, please anybody come and find me, get me, get me to my cabin. And then I realized, oh my God, I, I almost just died right here. I really do need to get some help. And so I just mustered all the energy I could possibly muster just to start my car and and just coast it down the hill uh, to get to my workplace. And then uh, uh, they were having a banquet and my president found me and saw me. I mean, I, I couldn't even move. I couldn't even get out of the car. And he said, we got to take you to the ER. And um, and they did. And they did all the blood tests. And what they found out was that I had a severe uh, uh, deficiency in potassium and phosphorus. Um, and I asked them, what is that? And they said, that's basically the electricity in your body. Um, it's it's the thing that keeps your heart pumping. It's the it's the thing that keeps your lungs moving. And and I was so depleted. They said I could have died within hours or days. And that that explained why I was just so so lethargic. It, it's what um, 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 
the carpenter singer, Linda Carpenter, mm -hmm. uh, what she died of was from a phosphorus um, and potassium deficiency that came out of anorexia. I mean, it's, it's that serious. So, wow. wow. And what kind of, how long were you in a, a rehab type environment? Um, I was in, uh, they, they put me into a mental institution because I was, you know, I finally admitted that I was suicidal and that I'd kill myself if they, if they let me go from the ER. I was there for about four weeks. Um, then they let me out uh, over Christmas for a couple of days. And then I had a second meltdown and, and went back in for another about three weeks. Um, uh, and then I was an outpatient for a couple of years. Is it, and then was this the first time you really started diving into therapy at this juncture or had you already uh, any, any, any real therapy? Yeah. I mean, my, you know, my wife and I had gone to marriage counselors, you know, uh, went to several of them and, and I, I was trying different things, but, but after that, that was when I did the deep dive into therapy and found yeah an amazing therapist and, you know, was with him for 10 years. Um, um, and, and that was, yeah. And so that's where you first really started getting honest about your, your trauma, your sexual abuse. And then that sounded like, you know, how the mind works with your memory. Like it sounded like, you know, it's the way your memory was trying to piece together your past right. in therapy. It's in it like describe that a little bit. Cause I think it's interesting how, you know, you know, how reliable and then unreliable sometimes your memory is and, and then how your trauma gets stored in your body and how those memories sometimes can be super accurate. You can trust your body, but then at the same time, you, you don't always piece it together like factually accurately, right? It's describe that process of how the memory organizes and deorganizes through trauma. And then how do you piece that back together in a healing environment? Yeah. It's kind I mean, of it, like a really interesting part of the journey of just trying to reassemble memories, right? And experiences. Right. And bot and how it's stored in your body, that was fast. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's a harrowing journey. I mean, it really can be. So I, you know, when when my folks split up when I was thirteen, you know, I it was so excruciating. I said, I I am never going to let myself feel pain like this again. And I and I just locked up my inner life and and I did not have a memory before that. Um, you know, on until I had my breakdown. I mean, I had no memories at all, but just tiny flashes of this or that or of a nightmare. And so it was about trying to reconstruct what had happened. And and while I didn't have the memories at the time, I did have the bodily sensations, you know, when I was have a nightmare of, of being raped or something. I mean, I, I could feel it in my body in those very places. It's like my body knew what had happened, you know, but, but the memory hadn't been connected with it. And also the emotional life, right? I mean, um, just, uh, you know, see, seeing a, a, you know, a, a priest in a movie and all of a sudden I'm just ready to kill, right? I mean, just the, the rage that just, you're like, where the hell is that coming from? Or, or my mom coming to visit and she puts her hand on on my on my shoulder and i'm like no what do you, don't touch me i mean what's what's you know it's like the emotions and the bodies they are they are wired they still store the trauma i mean they they you know it's like vessel van de Kolk's book the body keeps the score i mean they, they know and so you know i would like try to try to remember things, you know, and ask, you know, from my siblings and whatnot, Hey, where, where did we live? You know, what, you know, what happened here? Do you ever remember being around Harold and that kind of stuff while also having nightmares that were not memories, but they were, 
symbolic representations and then a little glimpse of a memory here, a little glimpse of a memory there. But then I would actually like fantasize, well, maybe this happened or maybe this happened. And I've, and, and it's like, 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 you know, trial and error kind of bits and pieces, putting it all back together um, until there's an integration, like the body, the emotions and the memories, like, oh yeah, no, this, this is what happened. Yeah. Now I remember this exactly. It, it's a it's a harrowing process and you're doubting yourself and ashamed you know <laughs> trying to wonder and yeah it's it's a tough process to be a trauma survivor yeah and describe describe shame for me because you know obviously Brene Brown has really I think done a great service to the world as she's you know basically a sociologist that studied shame and then tried to unpack that for all of us and you know I've heard her say things like uh, you know shame is an unwanted story. Um, shame is, um, never good enough. Shame is, uh, you know, self-hatred. I know when I melted down publicly, like I did, you know, I never wanted to be that pastor, you know, who, who, right. who screwed up like I did, you know, in fact, I'd prayed a million person. I'd pray, I'd ask God, kill me and take me off the planet before I'd ever be unfaithful or do anything to disgrace the name of Jesus, you know, kind of stuff. You know what I mean? Totally. totally. And then now it's the whole world knew about it in 24 hours. Once the Kansas city star published that article, it hit Christianity today. It hit the religious news service charisma. I mean, every magazine feed in the world, it went around the world in 24 hours. And I, I literally wanted, I, I didn't care if I lived or died at that point. I was so humiliated. I hated myself. I was angry at me. I was angry as, and I felt angry at God and the shame, the shame just almost took me out. Mm -hmm. I I just didn't even want to get out of bed, you know? Ah, so the, I can't even imagine, you know, and what I went through, (laughs) like I said, I could blame half of it on myself, right. (laughs) You know, or three quarters of it, you know? And so you're, you're dealing with a shame response that's similar probably that I had, but you might be blaming yourself for all that stuff and yet it's not your fault. Right. What, I mean, or at least how does it, you know, as a kid who survived all that, you still end up feeling shame for it. Right. Oh, hundred percent. Absolutely. And you're like, I, I, an adult can come say, well, Frank, it's not your fault. That wasn't your deal. But then you felt it just described that dichotomy there a little bit between like the innocence of a kid who's not his fault, not your fault at all. But then the way you take on that sense of shame and that sense of of ownership of it, what this yeah. that a little bit. Yeah, I, I mean, what you described that you went through. I mean, I resonate completely. You know, oh my God, if anybody ever knew what I was really like, or what had happened to me, or or what I'm thinking about inside, or what I'm what I you know can't can't stop thinking about abuse images, or whatever, I mean, they would just be repulsed by me, and I would be you know just excrement in in the other people's eyes. I mean, it's that kind of shame, and and for an abuse survivor, I mean, so when you're a child. You know, these these are these are adult figures, right? Who have who have a power and a presence to them um, that you don't question so quickly as a child. I mean, you don't you don't like what is happening, but. 
but how do you make sense of it? You know, like if I got raped, I mean, I thought, well, I must have made it mad. You know, I, I must have, you know, done something that that, you know, made him want to do that to me or 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 I was just disgusting enough or or a, a bad enough kid that I deserve this kind of a thing, you know, um, or, or or for my mom, too. It's like, you know, I, I must be, you know, making her do this to me or, or you know, or, or wanting to be close to her in some way. And and, and 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 inviting this and i mean as a child you're trying to make sense of something that is you know non un, nonsensical right i mean it's impossible to make sense of that but you're but but you take that on to yourself so it must be something about me i must be really soiled i must be really damaged goods i must be you know original sin i must really be depraved i mean they must they must be right those theologians i must <laughs> be depraved to my core right i mean that that's how insidious that doctrine I, can be yeah i hear you <laughs> <laughs> I am that filthy, dirty, rotten rag, you know. Exactly. Yes. That is uh-huh. me. And so now I'm going to hide that and not let anybody see it because it's only going to confirm the truth, you know, that, oh, my God, this is what Frank is really, really like. Oh, we're going to be disgusted. And God, you know, God, God's nowhere to be found, right? God is, you know, hey, come, God, please, you know, I'm so sorry. Forgive me. You know, I want to be good, faithful. Just come to me and and be with me. And, you know, that that God has abandoned us. This God is nowhere to be seen. So I I must be that bad. I must be so bad that not even God is willing to, to get God's hands dirty with me, you know. Yeah. That's excremental. Oh, it's just oh. so, oh, shame. I just. Oh, and, and we need to be healed from it. You know, I, when I read Roar's book falling upward and I started, you know, I'm always reading the footnotes and then I started reading everybody that Roar was footnoting and it led me to that Matthew Fox book on original blessing. Yeah, exactly. Right. And, oh, I just, it, it was like drinking fresh, fresh drink of water, you know? Absolutely. That's an antidote. Exactly. Yeah. So, so. Also, let's make a turn. I mean, we're t- yeah. this is pretty horrific, the trauma stuff. I know. But there's healing from this this yeah. shit. And that's, you know, kind of what the book is about is the mm-hmm. is the quest that I went on. And for me, one of the huge turns was instead of demonizing all of my inner world, my feelings or my impulses or my bodily sensations, beginning to approach them with curiosity and saying, okay, you know, I feel what I feel for a reason. My body is reacting the way it is for a reason. And, and it, it, but this was a hard turn. I mean, it took my therapist years of saying, Frank, you're feeling what you feel for a reason. And so, okay, so instead of I'm a bad person because I'm feeling these things or thinking these things, what, what, where did this come from? What, what is underneath this? And, and, and being able to recognize that all of those inner feelings and impulses they can be held with care and compassion that they can be they can be met and 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 restored even our shame itself in its own counterintuitive way is trying to help us it's trying to protect us from being known in a way that's going to end up abandoning us and being rejected it's like okay i'm going to make you feel shame so you don't let yourself go out there and let other people see you where you will be rejected and repulsed and and it's it's a twisted survival mechanism but it means well and it's really an invitation for healing an invitation for restoration so if we can even learn to have compassion for our shame compassion for for the things that that feel excremental to us that's when they are transformed. That's when they become gold. That's the alchemy of, of healing and, and transformation. And yeah. that, 
IFS invites us into, for example. Yes. Yeah. And that was a, that was a hard turn for me too, because I had, you know, I grew up with the, you know, the battle of the flesh and the spirit and you conquer it and you suppress it and you victory over it and you pray it away and you, you know, and then, and then that didn't work. Right. Like I'm left with all of the negative shit. Right. And then all of a sudden I'm like, you know, that's when I started getting into the mindful meditation and, and the self-compassion and the exact things you're talking about, like, okay, well, how do I sit with this with curiosity, openness, and non-judgment? Exactly. And that began a part of my healing journey that I'm obviously still on. And I thought it was interesting. You cited Walter Wink, <laughs> which, you know, I, I knew Wink from his power trilogy, right? Like his, you know, but you, you talked about how he said that we almost have to go through our enemy for our healing. If I know that's a, probably an awkward paraphrase, but, um, and then, and then it was almost, so it was almost like your mother was that enemy that you had to go through to find your healing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, Wink's idea is that our enemies are kind of custom made for us. I mean, the, the people that repel us and repulse us and, um, you know, trigger us, um, there's a reason. I mean, there, there's something in us that is being triggered by that per- particular person. And, and the fact that we don't all have the same enemies is kind of, you know, a clue around this. The person that you just go, oh, that's just the way they are. And I, I kind of have care for them and I can have curiosity for them. To me, it's like they just trigger me, you know, like, oh, my gosh, that, that's, that's you know, horrible. And so Wink is saying that's because it, there's stuff in our shadow that has that has not been brought into the light of day, that has not been accepted and integrated and restored. And our enemies, you know, the people who repulse us, they are the, like the divining rods that are able to, uh, you know, with pitch perfect accuracy, uh, surface the thing in me that still hasn't been healed or the thing in me that still hasn't been held. And so instead of, um, you know, just demonizing the enemy, let's take the time to do the U-turn and say, okay, what in me is being active? here so that I can find a space of healing and recovery and then get back to my kind of my best self from when from which I can then look at the person that is triggering me say okay now what's really going on in this situation and engage it with clarity and wisdom and compassion and 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 resilience whatever is called for in the situation and I, I found that to be tremendously true for me I mean my mom, as long as I was being triggered, I mean, I needed to deal with my own healing um, in, in, you know, instead of just demonizing her until I could get to a place where, okay, now I can have a conversation with her and not be knocked off my center every time I, I see her or I hear her voice. That was on me to, to get to that healing space. Yeah. yeah. When I, you know, as I was reading, you know, I've been reading so much here the last four years, but, you know, like Ken Wilber's Religion of Tomorrow, and he, he, he dives, does a lot of dives into the shadow work kind of stuff that, you know, you, that, that we're talking about here. Right. And um, I thought that was interesting. And then I, I, so with your mom being the enemy that you have to go through to work through this, this shadow work that we're talking about here, the healing around the shame around all of this, you, 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 you continue to bring out this payata. Pieta. Pieta. Okay. Sorry. Right. Yeah. Pieta. And then the Shekinah that when you went through your, your fictional journey and you, uh, to me, like the Shekinah 
idea and the Pieta idea were were interlinked, right? They are interlinked. Yeah. yeah. Right. And then how they how they play against your mother, so to speak, or or how your mother got you to describe yeah. describe what that mean that describe what Pieta means, and then the the Shekinah component of that and how it relates to the the healing part of your mother journey. Yeah, yeah. So, so Pieta is the image, you know, Michelangelo had a famous Pieta in the Sistine Chapel where, um, uh, or St. Peter's Square, where Mary is holding the, the, the dead, broken body of Jesus in her, in her lap and is just holding him and gazing upon him with just immense compassion and, and deep care and, and sorrow, really gets the pain and is able to hold it um, um, with, with, with love in, in the midst of that. And for me, um, that became an image that really resonated with the, the moments that I had where I would try to, to be with the wounded ones inside of me, you know, the child, you know, the child in me that was still carrying this, this form of, of abuse. And, and when I could just kind of cradle that boy and hold him in the same kind of maternal like compassion, um, it, 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 it aligned me with this just kind of this cosmic sense of, of, a, of a maternal sacred compassion that just is, is woven into the universe. And, and for me, that is that is my sense of God now, that just this, this kind of force field of love, this, this force field of compassion that, that is woven into every moment of experience. I mean, that is holding every single thing with, with understanding and, and with kindness and with care and, and who sees it and gets it and feels it. And in that capacity to kind of be there as that maternal womb-like presence is able to resuscitate our spirits, is able to help us get out of bed again, is able to help us walk another step on the healing journey and, and find hope and resilience and, 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 and care. Um, that, that kind of maternal presence of the Pieta is my, is my image of God now. And, um, and it's, it, it has sustained me throughout my journey. And, and as I was kind of, doing this healing journey, I would do these imaginative explorations into my inner world. Okay, what other child in me is still wounded and, and needing to be cared for? What other part of me is feeling shame and excremental and needs to be washed and held with care? And as I was doing that, um, this kind of this kind, I think like, like a sacred, like a spirit guide. This 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 embodiment, the Shekinah, would come in much like when we meditate on the Gospels and we see the figure of Jesus might come and and meet us. It was like this 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 figure, this 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 Jewish figure from the Hebrew Bible of uh, who is uh, uh, the maternal face of God who would wander the world uh, and and be wherever people were suffering and try to knit their spirits back together. She would kind of come into my meditations and and tend to the the wounded ones within me and and she was she was not the same thing as this Pieta cosmic presence but she was like a hologram of it she was like an embodiment or an incarnation of it um, that 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 you could interact with and be with in a in a profoundly healing way and that that spiritual journey of getting to know that kind of Shekinah presence and coming to know that that we are held in this maternal cosmic compassion really is what resuscitated me out of my own trauma journey. Wow. Yeah. I explain it. Is that well clear? Well, and it ties into, you know, this. So like I'm, you know, I'm on this kind of embracing the more process open and relational theology world now, which obviously Claremont is known for, right? <laughs> right here. <laughs> uh, and uh, 
John Cobb's office was right next door. <laughs> exactly. And uh, so I'm, I'm just diving into this world. Like I'm a kid again, you know, and just kind of just being a sponge and trying to read, read, read Tom, Tom Ward's trying to get me to do another a PhD with him in the <laughs> process world. I'm like, do I really need another degree? <laughs> you know, but no, but I'm actually thinking of doing it just to put some discipline to my stuff, yeah. you know, but, stuff. Um, but yeah, the, I mean, the, the big concept for me, you know, I, my favorite new verse, you know, how I memorized thousands of verses as a, as a young follower of Jesus. And my new one is first John four sixteen. you know, God is love. Those who live in love, live in God and God lives in them. And that uncontrolling love is at the heart of my understanding of God now. And, um, and then, you know, and I'm actually kind of frustrated with it because I wanted a, a bit stronger God who could do some stuff. You know, I remember in my, my older day, you know, like, you know, if you're, if you're not an atheist and then you believe in God, why would you want to believe in a God who can't do anything? <laughs> right, right. I mean, you might as well just be an atheist, right? Yeah. So, so this, this space of, for me of reshaping my concept of God, which is really what and it's been a painful process for me, honestly, uh, Frank. Uh, but but to embrace the un the loving, uncontrolling nature of God, and and really coming to realize that anytime you dominate anything, that's not love. Anytime you you know that that kind of top down isn't the kind of love that that you're describing in this. I'm going to get this. I, I'm going to have to get work on this name, this mother who embraces the suffering and just envelops you with love. That's, that's like, okay, God, I want to know that God. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, 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 you know, let's not minimize it's excruciating for that old God to die and to die inside of us and in our, in our religious imaginations. I, I totally, totally get that. Yeah. For, for me, that, that maternal God that we're talking about, you know, I mean, when, when we go see, you know, somebody in the hospital who's, who's got cancer or somebody who's in despair and suicidal and we sit next to them, you know, we can't do anything. We can't fix them. We can't, you know, make them all better at all. But the capacity to sit next to them with our heart open and us fully getting it, like I see the pain, I see the despair, I see what you are going through, and I am gut-wrenched for you. And I will sit right here with 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 care and love and compassion. That's not doing nothing. That's right. doing something pretty extraordinary. And that energy, that it's a sacred energy. I, I call it compassion. Yeah. That sacred energy has the power to, to 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 restore one's spirit, to help one, you know, feel met and got in the midst of their in their in their despair, perhaps, or in their in their dying journey. That's that's powerful for me. It it, it is, and you know, I found that in the AA hall. Yeah, I, I, mean, I, I landed in the AA hall like going, if there's a God, f God. I was so angry. I was so angry at myself. I was so ashamed. And I, and who wants to end up in an AA hall? You know, like, it's like I did. <laughs> and then I go to the one, you know, and it turns out out of 200 people, 50 or 60 of them were at my church. You know, I had the mega church, you know, and <laughs> I had no anonymity, you know, and all I right. could feel was just shame and like, but then, you know, just 
being present with people who are honest and vulnerable and real about their pain and their suffering and their, and their addictions and their, you know, whatever. And then they're present there with you and they love you and you're not alone in it. Exactly. And you find a sponsor who has walked through it too, you know, and, and you're not alone in it. And there's That's, people who love you despite all your crap. And you see, you see it all. They see it all. So it's not that they're pretending they see the crap and they love you anyway. anyway. And that's yeah. what that's what started healing me yeah, was exactly. like people who loved me anyway. Even when I was totally honest about all my shit. Right. <laughs> exactly. That's 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 Shakina. Uh, yes. Yeah. Maternal Pieta presence that that is sacred power to, to restore. Absolutely. Yeah, I love that. So at the, at the end, end of your book, um, you listed out and we're, we're getting short on time here, but I want to give a little bit to this. Um, you listed out 10 things at the very end. And I just want to mention each one of them, actually, if you don't mind, and you can give like a, a one minute, two minute comment on each one, maybe, but, um, you talked about these, this course toward healing. And the first one is circles of support. Mm -hmm. Just give yeah. a brief comment. Yeah, I mean, finding finding people who could do what we just said, who who would be with us in the abuse journey, and say, "Hey, you know, I know it's hard. You know, I'll be with you. You know, you feel what you feel for a reason, and you're not making this up." And um, people who could just companion us, whether they're friends or or spiritual directors or therapists, but the, but that's indispensable. Yeah. And the second, setting boundaries. Yeah, well, for me, I couldn't be around my mom while I was trying to heal from the trauma because every time I heard her voice, I would just get reactivated and triggered. And so I had to set limits on, you know, mom, I needed a season where I just can't be in contact with you while I really give myself to my healing journey until I'm strong enough that I can resume a conversation with you. Um, um, so, yeah, we need to set limits so that we're not continually reactivated or the trauma journey is going to hit a brick wall. Mm. Uh, a season of recovery. Yeah. Yep. Mike, Mike Lou, who, who wrote a, a book, no longer strangers, um, who really was um, uh, helpful on healing from male sexual abuse. But he said that we need to have a season where we put out uh, what closed for repairs, mm. you know, kind of the shop of our, of our own window. Like, you know, I just needed a season where I'm doing nothing but giving myself to my recovery journey. So I'm going to minimize my work. I'm going to minimize other commitments and just say, this is my season of recovery. Mm. And, you, and it seemed like your school, Claremont actually supported you. Claremont is journey. amazing. It is an amazing school. Um, amazing you know, to me. <laughs> kind of support. It, they really have been amazing. Yeah, they, oh, they really did. What about, and then for learning about sexual abuse? Yeah, for me, it was so empowering. I, I would just read everything I could on sexual abuse, whether it was nonfiction stuff or novels or watch movies. And and it wasn't a wallowing in the pain. For me, it was so validating. I mean, I could read these descriptions and go, yes, they're, they're describing me. Yeah, those are my symptoms. Okay, there's a reason. All right, there's, there's, a, there's a people that's my people. Um, it was extraordinarily validating as well as getting tools for what do you do when you're activated and dysregulated? And it's a great literature to, to, to be a support. And five is trauma therapy. And you mentioned the internal family systems, Richard Schwartz, which we 
and you're a friend of his. That's cool. And then the EMDR and then the, the great book, The Body Keeps the Score. Yeah, which is really the trauma manual as far as I'm concerned. But what's important about trauma therapy, it's not just talk therapy because trauma is wired into our brains and, and it's the way our neurons fire, the ways that memories are constellated. And those actually have to be reshifted. They have to be renewed and realigned. And so it takes very intentional types of trauma therapy uh, that involves you know deep imagination work or meditative work or rapid eye movement work and and uh, Bessel van der Kolk's book lists you know like ten or fifteen great trauma modalities that really get at the deep deep healing of rewiring our brains and our bodies. Mm. And then uh, number seven, or I'm sorry, number six is trusting my body. Trusting yeah. my body. Yeah. Instead of instead of fighting it, you know, there's something awful about me. You know, my body reacts this way when when my, somebody touches me, you know, I, I cringe. OK, well, so what is going on? And my body is carrying something. It's it's doing that for a reason. So let me trust that instead of, uh, you know, demonizing it or saying, you know, well, I, I, it's just because I'm a bad person that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm reacting this way. No. OK. My body's trying to tell me something here. Let's listen to it. OK. Seven is giving expression to my emotions. Yeah, I mean, I I needed to be able to to get it out, you know, and and uh, whether that would be to howl or to to you know, I'm an incessant journaler. That's that's you know, that's why I have, have was able to write this book because I can go back to all these experiences and and um, and but but writing them out on paper or coloring them or or music or 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 you know, power walking and yelling at the trees. I mean, I needed to be able to give expression to the angers and the lament and and uh, all of that stuff. Mm. Yeah. And, uh, oh, you know, even just, you know, we're not so great at knowing our feelings like Mark Brackett's permission to feel that kind of stuff, you know, where you, you become a little more sophisticated and getting in touch with your emotions. That's been good for yeah. me. Number eight, brief, uh, befriending and restoring my psychic states. Yeah. And for me, this was the game changer. Um, and, and it's related to internal family systems too, that I hadn't known about, but, um, and that is that instead of fighting what I feel, trusting that what I feel is there for a reason and wants to be heard and tended, you know, so instead of like manipulating it or praying it away, which I say is kind of like trying to push a buoy underwater, right? It just, my the emotions keep coming up, you know, the lusts keep coming, the rage keeps coming, the shame keeps coming. So, all right. So instead of fighting it or trying to fix them or or minimize them, let me turn to them and say, okay, you know, like Rumi's guest house poem, you're, you're in my inner world as a guest. You're here for a reason. You have some message for me. There's some pain that you come from or some need that you're asking to be tended. Let me befriend you. Let me hear what your cry is. Let me hear what you need from me. And I will tend to you with, with care, a mindfulness and heartfulness, you know, kind of being with them. That's huge. That's been huge for me. Uh, I was not taught that in my evangelical upbringing. <laughs> I just got that nowhere, nowhere. Exactly. Yeah. And then physical activity, which I'm a cyclist. I've been a distance endurance runner. So that's, that's like, I call that therapy too. When I just go out and ride my bike for a few hours, you know? 
Totally. Yeah, me too. I, so I'm a, I'm a distance runner and, and, you know, have been for years and, and didn't realize running was part of my therapy and, and, and it, it both, it, it physically discharges stuff that is in, in our bodies. Um, but also um, I would actually kind of metabolize some of my trauma while I was running, um, um, which is, which is another kind of body-based way of, of, of being able to do trauma therapy on yourself is you just kind of, instead of reliving the memories while you're running, kind of imagine, what's happening and rework with them as your body's exerting itself it's like a powerful combination but yeah physical activities you know mountain biking you know because you're constantly not trying to crash and your eyes are doing this all the time and it's to me it almost mountain biking almost functions like that emdr stuff you know Uh, exactly a hundred percent yeah founder of emdr would the way she discovered it was when she would when she would power walk and would, would process her her memories while power walking but and doing the same thing with her eyes while she was power walking but but she couldn't do therapy getting clients to go power walk with folks and so she had to find a different way to get the eye stimulation and and came up with that bilateral movement but yeah but that's exactly what happens right yeah, yeah. and then the the 10 is transforming trauma into art which i other than my preaching and teaching uh, I haven't done any, you know, like artistic, you know, like paintings or anything, but you know, I've had friends that have, you know, even I did an interview with somebody who's even used with some of the magic mushrooms and then artwork out of that. And I don't, you know, anyway, it's an interesting, there's a lot of different ways to transform that into art. Well, yeah, many, many different ways in modalities, but it, it's it's taking the experience then and then reshaping it and bringing beauty out of it, you know, whether it be music, you know, even if it's blues or poetry or or painting, you know, for me, it was storytelling and, and writing this memoir it was an artistic yeah. expression and yeah. And that's and, what I'm doing with my memoir right now. So, yeah, yeah. And teaching and teaching and preaching can be artful in those yeah. ways. Definitely. So I, I just want to say that epilogue there, um, that, that after with those 10 things of what I did to, to heal from trauma, mm-hmm. uh, really is is the reason that I wrote the book was my sister, when she was 49, she took her own life um, when she started getting hounded by hallucinations and PTSD symptoms. And, and just before she did, she was in a mental institution and she called me to come up and be with her. And, um, and she said, you know, Hey, 30 years ago, you were like, I am, you were in an institution, you're ravaged by hallucinations and nightmares. What did you do to get better? And at the time, all I could say was Linda, I got good help. We're going to get you good help. I'll be with you. And three weeks later, she took her own life. And, and that's what prompted me to write this book. So the book itself is my answer. This is what I did to get better. And that afterward was, you know, if I could synthesize that into 10, yeah. 10 things that helped, this is what this is what I wish I could offer my sister and what I want to offer anybody who suffers from trauma and could find some helpfulness in these resources. So yeah. So tell people, you know, how to f- where where do they find you? Of course, you can go on Amazon and get the book. That's what I did. And um Yeah, but but you also have your the Center for Engaged Compassion. Is that related to sexual abuse stuff or it's not it's not related to sexual abuse per se. It is it is related to teaching people these compassion-based processes of self-restoration and then how to be able to relate to others out of these compassionate spaces, even up to our enemies. And what does that look like? And so we do workshops on uh, cultivating that kind of internal compassion, self-compassion and compassion for others. Um, and so all, all that I learned in the memoir, you know, all, all that, that stuff, we kind of put it in workshops and programs through the Center for Engaged Compassion. 
So yeah, Center for Engaged Compassion.org. You can find me or email me at frogers, F-R-O-G-E-R-S at cst.edu and be happy to, to continue the conversation. It's awesome. Thank you, Frank. Thank you for sharing your journey. And uh, yeah, did you ever, did, when you were writing this, I'm just curious, because I'm, I'm, I'm in some of the sections that are, I'm writing through some of my most traumatic moments right now <laughs> where I'm at in my writing phase. Hey, right. right. <sighs> There's sometimes I just got to back away from it, you know, and did you, did you find yourself kind of like, were you able to sit down and let this rip or were you able to, did you, were you moving in and out and in and out? How long did it take you to write that? I'm curious. About 18 months um, okay. during the COVID COVID months. Um, yeah. So I was able to really give some serious writing time, but absolutely. You got to self-regulate and mm-hmm. you get activated from the trauma scenes or the grief scenes or whatnot. And, and then do what we said, go cycle, go run, go take care of yourself, find a friend to talk to and all the things that, that are at our disposal that to, to help us with. But, yeah. And this has been a deep honor for me. I feel a deep kinship with you and have thoroughly enjoyed our conversation and getting to know you a bit as well. So uh, really grateful. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. And uh, thanks everybody for tuning in to uh, spirituality adventures. And so grateful for this moment. Thank you. Thank you, Frank. God bless you. Absolutely. You as well. Take care everybody. See you next time. Hey, I'm Kadesh Flo. Um, it's cool to be here on the Spirituality Adventures podcast with Fred Heron. Um, I just wrote this song that is going to be out on uh, January 1st, and it's recorded and everything, but I still don't know it. So I'm just going to do what we could do on it. It's called Overcome. It's inspired by a character, the Nami from Jujutsu Kaisen, um, who I relate to a lot because he is a jiu-jitsu sorcerer, but he left that life to get a corporate job for a while because he thought it was reckless, but his his gifts and passions ended up calling him back to, um, to help some of the kids out and whatnot. And it's a fateful decision, we'll say that. Um, used to tell people who look up to me to keep it pushing. Don't give up because for greatness, we must pay a price. Gotta be honest, though, the way my lane and future's looking, I'm not all that certain that I've been given great advice. Privileged by my talent when I've been trying to escape this life was my attempt to reject my purpose, simply wasted time, wondering what I accomplished, trying to run away from mine. People inspired by me, I'll call the past so they can shine. This has always been a volatile way of life, exhausted. Wondering if support would come in pain as I've been walking, fighting curses with my guilt because I'm complicit. Just being alive in the systems we exist in, I've been burned, recognizing why I'm on this earth to risk it. Life and livelihood, I heard the call and then I listened. I wish I'd never run away. I wish this world were different. I'm just trying to last until we shift it. I pray that we can overcome. Take it in the overtime. Unlock my full potential. Maintain hope that I can overcome. Yeah, I'm supposed to shine. And when the going gets tough, I still hold the line to overcome. Take it in the overtime. Unlock my full potential. Maintain hope that I can overcome. Yeah. I'm supposed to shine. And when the going gets tough, I still hold the line. Was going extra hard. I hope the pay adjusted. Corporate ladder led the quagmires I was stuck in. Meanwhile, people think my skills are what luck did. They don't know how much I had to grind to make it up here. Staring down obstacles calmly. I'm just doing math. Used to think it reckless for anybody to choose this path. Walking this, you never know how quickly you can leave this earth. Been looking for answers, but just ended up receiving burn scars that clouds my vision. Pushing forward, wondering if I made the right decision. Had a decent living. 
Have I done enough? No, that's why I'm still relentless. Resolute with past limits still come to remembrance. Back when I thought leaving corporate meant that bill payments were getting through. But now I ditched the coat and tie. Know that I gotta hit the city doing just what I was built to do. Because complacency's too miserable. I pray that we can overcome. Take it in the overtime. Unlock my full potential. Maintain hope that I can overcome. Yeah. I'm supposed to shine, and when the going gets tough, I still hold the line and overcome. Taking in the overtime, unlock my full potential, maintain hope that I can overcome. Yeah, I'm supposed to shine, and when the going gets tough, I still hold the line and overcome. Hey, you made it to the end. Thanks for listening all the way through on this episode. By the way, if you're not already a supporter, go to spiritualityadventures.com. Sign up for one of our monthly supports and you will receive our bonus content. You'll receive lots of interesting information about our guests. Many of our musicians will do special bonus songs and record a song. So I want to encourage you to do that. Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. Be sure and subscribe. Be sure and share any of the episodes that you like. And be sure and make comments if you like them as well. This helps us. Uh, get spirituality adventures out there to more listeners, more, more watchers. So whatever platform you're using, subscribe, like, share, make comments, and go to our website, sign up for our team and be a part of the team support. Thank you so much. And we'll see you next time.